morning. I'll be reading out of Romans 4, 13 through 22. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here, and it is so good to be worshiping with you this morning. And we continue worship uh, as we open up God's Word and hear from it today. We are convinced that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And the, the bread that we've been living on is the bread of justification by faith alone. And Paul has been consistently and thoroughly feeding us the diet of justification by faith starting in chapter 3, verse 21, and he continues in chapter 4 this morning. He's been working to establish for the people of God that their standing before God, that their righteousness before God is established not by their works or by works of the law or by circumcision or any other thing that they can contribute. It is only established by faith, and faith is then counted as righteousness. Now, now, faith and justification by faith as a, as a doctrine, as a truth, as a reality from the Scripture needs to be known thoroughly, as Paul is explaining it thoroughly. But what we need to not miss in that is the utmost importance of faith itself. And so Paul, as he's describing the, the story of our father Abraham, he, he doesn't leave Abraham's story an example uh, that continues through chapter 4. He won't leave it. Uh, without showing us a little bit of the nature of his faith. And so the, the fatherhood of Abraham is weaved throughout all of chapter 4, and he returns to it again in the passage this morning to continue to establish that, that faith is of the utmost importance, and then he starts to describe some of the nature of that faith that was present in Abraham. Now, Paul has already asserted Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness apart from works, apart from his circumcision. In fact, before that sign and seal of the promise was given. And now he's going to say, verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring, 
that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham didn't earn his right standing before God. He didn't earn righteousness. He didn't start, God didn't start the process with Abraham and then Abraham then take over from there. Like that's not how it goes at all. He didn't work his way into it. He didn't earn any portion of it. It was given to him. And here Paul says the the promise came from his faith. The the promise didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The the promise to Abraham and to his offspring was this promise of land and seed and blessing. It it connects, he's connecting here with verse 13 to verses 9 through 12, where he talks about how Abraham is the father of of all who believe, who all who have faith, whether they're circumcised or not circumcised. But if you look in the Genesis account of Abraham, None of the promises seem to say that Abraham would be what Paul says here, be heir of the world. God promised him land. He promised him blessing and that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He promised him offspring that he would have children. And so he, he, he promises, chapter 12, verse 3, he's going to bless. Through Abraham, there's going to be blessing to all the families of the earth. In chapter 13, He's going to say that, you know, lift up your head, look around. I'm going to give you land as far as your eye can see. So he promises actual land. In chapter 17, he says, kings are going to come from you. In chapter 22, he says that you're going to possess the gates of your enemies. So those are some some massive promises from God. But none of those seem to say to Abraham, I'm going to make you the heir of the entire world. They come, you know, kind of in that direction, but... Not the same thing. So what is Paul doing when he says, he says he made this promise that he would be the heir of the world in Romans chapter 4 verse 13. I think that what Paul's doing is he's, he's reading the scripture rightly and he's reading the promises given to Abraham in light of other promises that he's read throughout the Old Testament. And he's reading all of those promises together in light in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which I think is the right way to read the scripture. He, he then looks back through that lens Abraham's promise, other Old Testament promises in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He looks through that lens, and as he sees through that lens, he sees that this promise had a wider scope than Abraham thought. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Every tribe, tongue, and language is going to be around the throne, worshiping the the lamb who is slain. He is the one who's going to make blessings flow far as the curse is found, and it is found all over the earth. Jesus is the the true seed of Abraham, and at the same time, he's the Psalm 2 man, where you remember Psalm chapter 2, where the, the Lord's anointed, his Messiah is the one who is going to possess and reign and rule all the ends of the earth. Like Jesus is that same one, and Paul is looking back through all those promises. If Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, then he is the one who's going to inherit the entire world. And so the promise was, was bigger than maybe what Genesis is letting on as you read it back through a biblical lens. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that Jesus is the heir of all things, and we know that he is going to reign over all things along with his people, along with his saints. Who are the saints? The true offspring of Abraham by faith in Christ. And so the biblical scope of this promise is wider than a promised land. It's wider than an individual son like Isaac. It's maybe and probably wider than Abraham could even think or imagine. It He even looked beyond land itself and said, I'm looking for a city whose builder and founder is God. 
He, he was looking for a country, not just Canaan, but a, a better country, a, a heavenly country. In other words, I think the biblical scope of this promise is greater than, than even creation. I, I think it looks forward to a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. The world that was lost through sin will be the inheritance of the true seed of Abraham, Christ, and his people, the true offspring of Abraham, by faith. One commentator says it this way, that it is a promise that receives its ultimate fulfillment in the consummated order of the new heavens and the new earth. And so Paul doesn't misread as he's reading Genesis. He's not misreading the promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis. He reads them with all of the Old Testament together, that promise with these other promises in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he concludes from that that the promise that Abraham received, how did it come to him? Not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That promise was realized not by his doing, but by believing. It's through faith Abraham received this promise. So it follows that to get in on this promise as an heir of the entire world, the way in is grace. The way in is the same kind of faith that Abraham had. It's through faith that Abraham receives this, this promise. It's through faith that Abraham has righteousness to be Abraham's true offspring, to have him as father, to be one of God's people, you must have faith. Now that is really good news, even to the people who would have thought and argued otherwise. Now listen to verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. You cannot get in on this promise and be part of Abraham's line, be part of the people of God by adherence to the law. And he said it in a number of ways, and he just wants to make sure he puts it in front of him again. It's like if there's still a lingering argument that you can get in on this because your fiscal uh, descent from Abraham, like you're off. And that's bad news because there's a better news, better promise given to you that you can get in on this inheritance of the world by your faith in Christ. If adherence to the law is the deciding factor, then we know that Abraham's out, right? I mean, let's, Mosaic law didn't come until another 430 years after Abraham's life, but let's just say, all right, well, he lived by a law, right? But he failed that too, didn't he? I mean, Abraham is not a, a total success story. We're not looking at him as this, this person of, of complete holiness and righteousness. He failed. Right? Read Genesis. And he gives up his wife a few different times. Like, it's, it's not pretty sometimes with Abraham. And so, like, he failed. So if it comes through this, some sort of adherence to some sort of law, then that is bad news. But Genesis 15 is clear, right, that Paul quoted last week. And Paul repeats over and over again, that Abraham's faith, not his works of any kind, was counted to him as righteousness. And, and Paul advances that argument further. If, if adherence to the law was required for the promise, then there not only would Abraham not have received it, there would be no recipient of it, because what we read in verse 15, for the law brings wrath. So if you're, again, if you're sitting back thinking, maybe if I can, through the law, I can still get in on this promise. I'm a, I'm a physical descendant of Abraham, and through keeping law, I can get in on this. Here's what he wants you to know again. For the law brings wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Some would have looked at the law and thought that the law brings some sort of advantage to me in my standing before God. 
Because surely I'm not like that person over there who's worshiping idols. But what Paul says is kind of the opposite, maybe, of what they would have argued. He says, no, what the law actually brings to you is wrath. Now, why is that? Because the law brings transgression. Where there's law, there's transgression. Now, what that doesn't mean, he doesn't mean to say that where there's no law, there's no sin. Right? So, so transgression is always sin, but sin isn't always transgression. There's certainly sin and wrath for sin apart from the law. We saw that in chapter 1, right? There's certainly sin presence, not honoring and giving glory to God as he is due, chapter 1. And that is receiving the wrath of God, right? That's apart from the law. So there is sin and wrath for sin apart from the law. But transgression and sin here in this verse are not synonymous. All transgression is sin, but not all sin is transgression. Transgression, I think, here is more specific. It has in mind violation of God's commands. Violations of written law, of written commands. And because of man's sinful nature, where there is law, where God's righteousness is displayed in commands written down, there's the revealing of transgression because they cannot keep it. And so the law doesn't bring an advantage to anyone. It doesn't bring rescue from unrighteousness. It brings wrath because it reveals the sinful nature and the sinful heart of man. And so there's transgression where there's law. I think it's a bit like a medical exam, right? You can know that you are sick apart from a medical exam. You can suffer from your sickness apart from that exam. What the medical exam can do and hopefully does do is it can give a diagnosis. Like here's the actual problem. It names a documented disease. It specifies the kind of virus or germ that's, you know, living large in your life, right? It, and and the, the law is like that. It, it is like the kind of the exam. It, it, it can show you and name, like here's the things that are off. Here's where you're going wrong. But what the exam doesn't do, what you rely on the doctor to do is give the prescription. And, and the law doesn't give the prescription. It just reveals the problem. And so law and works of the law shouldn't be looked to to rescue from our unrighteousness. They shouldn't be looked to to bring us righteousness or to attain some sort of standing before God or to get in on the promise that our father Abraham had. Not because something is wrong with the law. Paul is going to assert later in chapter 7 verse 12 that the law is holy and good and righteous. The law doesn't rescue us from those things because something not is wrong in the law but is wrong in us. And the law just reveals it. It makes it evident and plain. And it says here's documented cases where you are transgressing these commands. The law further then confirms condemnation as it further reveals specific sin. And where there's sin, there's the opposition to sin from God. The necessary wrath of God. And so what the law does is confirm guilt. So where there's law, there's wrath. Because all fail to keep the law. And if they think they haven't, they haven't failed to keep the law, they need to reread chapter 2, don't they? So when Paul argues that the promise came through faith, and that the heirs of that promise are heirs by faith, we need to know that he's not just trying to silence his opponents. He's not just trying to win an argument. He's not just trying to cut off 
access to that promise, he's making the way to that promise more clear by pronouncing the good news that there is only one way, and he wants to make sure they're clear on what that one way is. He's saying that every other way to gain access to the promise, whether it be through the law or through circumcision or works of the law or works that you can come up with in your own, all of those ways, those are ways that will be frustrated. They will not turn out the way you want them to turn out. And so Paul's also writing to an audience who had been people who are struggling with fear as they feel the guilt that they receive from chapters 1 and 2 as they try to do enough and be enough and obey well enough to gain right standing before God. He would have had people like that in his mind. There are those who are trying to gain standing or favor before God based on what they can do, based on the law. And he wants to make sure that they know that adherence to the law, which whatever adherence you have to the law or anyone ever has to the law, adherence is only ever imperfect. That kind of adherence to the law will never bring assurance that one is in on this promise. Adherence to the law can't give comfort to the guilty because all it does over and over again is exposes transgression. He says, no, those who have faith, not who adhere to the law, are the heirs. They get the inheritance that's worth having for eternity, right? And so again, this is not merely a line of argument, but good news that the promise rests on something more sure than their imperfect adherence to the law. In verse 16, he says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The promise couldn't depend on the law because, again, the law brings wrath, because the law brings transgression. But the promise has surer ground than your adherence to the law. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, all right, up a few verses. He says, and he's contrasting here, faith and works. And the, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you, you work, you, you get your wage. But one who believes doesn't get what they're owed, right? They're gifted something. And they're gifted right standing before God. They're gifted righteousness. They're in on this promise from this gracious God. No human ability, no human effort could gain that standing, could get in on that promise just by effort. And so it's not dependent upon any effort or human work. It is only ever received. It rests, Paul says in verse 16, on grace. Rests on the grace of God. Not dependent upon any work. And when we say that it rests on the grace of God, that you get in on this by faith, that it depends on faith in order that may rest on grace. We're not saying faith, again, is not the work that gets you in on this. Faith itself we're looking to as part of that gracious gift. And Ephesians 2 verse 8 makes that clear, right? That we're, it's not our own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. Faith, faith itself is not a work but the gift. And so again, it rests on the grace of God. Faith, what it does is it receives the gift that God graciously and freely offers. It grabs hold of it. And so the gift of righteousness, the, the, the gift of the promise to be an inheritance, to gain this inheritance along with Abraham, rests on grace. And in that way, it can actually be guaranteed, he's going to say. If it rests on anything else, if it depends on anything else, you could never guarantee it. Are we going to rest it on Abraham's obedience? 
That goes up and down. Right? And he's probably more faithful than us. We're going to rest it on grace. And all of a sudden we have this sure foundation. This unchanging God who's holding not only the promise, but those who have faith in him in the sure place where they can obtain this promise. Verse 16, he says, it's guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. If the promise depends on anything else other than grace, it couldn't be guaranteed, it couldn't be firm. And think even of Abraham's faith. It wavers at time for sure. His adherence to the law is imperfect. Now you name the, the biblical character across history that was the most faithful to the law. Their obedience to the law was imperfect. But God's grace through all of those things remained the same. That's why it's good news that the promise comes through this faith. It depends on faith and rests on the grace of God rather than adherence to the law justification by faith belief counted as righteousness the promise coming through faith those are then not cold words and doctrines like those are not just nerdy things to know they're they're words of inclusion saying to the one who shares the faith of abraham shares in the inheritance of abraham Whether you adhere to the law, which you don't or not, if you have the faith of Abraham, you're in on this promise. They connect all sorts of unsteady lives, our unsteady lives of unrighteousness and disobedience to the steady ground of God's grace. They confirm what our works could never confirm, that we're in on this promise and have right standing before God. If you were trying to confirm that with your works, you would never get there. You could never be satisfied. These words are meant to speak peace into that and say, no, the the way that we have that standing before God wasn't based on those things anyway. Depends on faith. It rests on grace. They bring comfort and assurance. So Christian, rest. Your position before God depends on faith. It rests on grace. And the intention of this promise coming through faith was to guarantee it to all of Abraham's offspring, and that offspring of Abraham was an offspring by faith. And not, a, not necessarily a, a physical descent, but, but they were a people of faith. In verse 17, he says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Many nations. Abraham's fatherhood from Genesis onward was meant to be a fatherhood, not just of one nation, but of many nations. From the beginning, that's how God intended it. That is why he can call him the father of us all. That is those who share in the faith of their father Abraham. The the father of us all of verse 16 is a fatherhood of nations in verse 17. And Genesis, right? 17. And so in the presence of God here he says this, right? I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So he's, he said, I, I'm, I'm making you the father of many nations, and I've said this in the presence of God. That may attest to Abraham's fatherhood of all, as if he's the father of them all before the presence of God. Or it may speak to uh, God's divine recognition of him as the fatherhood of God. But it's a fatherhood of those who have faith. And it's the nature of that faith that then receives all of the emphasis from Paul for the rest of this passage in verses 17 through 22. 
Notice the emphasis on the nature of faith. He, he says, in the presence of God in whom we believed. And what's he like? He's this one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. Again, when we look at faith, it's so important for us to remember that where does Paul turn first? He turns not to the, the, the intricacies of faith, but to the object of faith first. And what an object of faith we have before us. Right? This is not just any God that, that we are to put our faith in. This is the exclusive God, the one and only true living God. This is the God who can give life to the dead and who can call into existence things that do not exist. That's not an ordinary God. Now, J.I. Packer says in his, his great book, Knowing God, which I would commend to all of you for your reading, he says that Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit. What's that modern spirit? The spirit, that is, that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. For churchmen who look at God, so to speak, through the wrong end of the telescope, so reducing him to pygmy proportions. And while considering the object of our faith, let's remember that that object of our faith is no pygmy God. This is a great God. Like he just, in a few phrases, he just exposes his greatness. He brings life to the dead. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. No other God does this. And so we need to stop thinking of it in the backwards looking of the telescope. As if we're great and big and we need to examine God. Like he's the one that is the great and big one. We were the ones who, we have an existence. And it had a start date and it's going to have an end date, right? It's like we are going to die. He has no start date. Like I mean, we could try to put his birthday down and it's like eternity past. Like how do you write that down? We, we could try to figure out when it's going to end. And it's like, well, eternity future. Like we, how do you write that down? Like, you know, they try to do it in the scripture and they just say alpha and omega, beginning and the end. Like, he's the one who's eternal forever. He goes on forever. And so while considering the object of our faith, let's remember who that object is. Make sure to look in the right end of the telescope. What, what Packer goes on to say is that if you have a, a pygmy God, you're going to have pygmy Christians. If you have a small view of God, you, you're going to have a small faith. But look what he's told us, that this is a God who, again who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He already told us, chapter 1, verse 4, didn't he? About this Jesus, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Like, that doesn't happen. Resurrections don't happen. But with God, they do. He, he's already told us, chapter 1, verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The things that are made, that, that didn't always, weren't always in existence, those are the things that are declaring the, the power of God, the divine glory of God. This is the God who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that, did, that do not exist. Now, both of those phrases are connected to Abraham's life and his faith. Verse 18, I think, uh, explains and further describes the second part of that, the calling into existence, the things that do not yet exist. And then the first phrase is going to be down in verse 19. So look in verse 18, where he says, In hope, 
Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. I think that fits into what he's saying in verse 17, that he's calling into existence the things that do not exist. And what I think verse 17 is getting at when it says that he's calling into existence the things that do not yet exist is, is not Genesis 1, although that's true and right, those things hadn't existed yet, and he calls them into existence, that's true. He, he's more specifically getting at what was not yet existing, but God determined that it would exist and would be, like Abraham's promise. He calls Abraham, makes him a promise, you're going to be the father of many nations. How many nations does he have so far? Zero. And he, he's saying and describing these things to him. is like, you're going to have more normal, numerous offspring than the, than the sand. Right? More than the stars. He's speaking them as if they're in existence, although they don't exist yet. When God told Abraham, your offspring's going to be numerous, he had zero children. But God spoke of them as if they were real. As real as the stars that Abraham could look at in the sky. And what did Abraham do? He trusted that God could effectively call those descendants into existence even though they had no existence. That's the faith of Abraham. His faith looked to a God-promised future, and he believed it. He believed. He had hope against hope. Like a Hope and faith are synonymous here in this, this passage. Like he trusted. He looked for. That's a, a kind of a faith that's looking forward to be a hope. He trusted this future that God was calling into existence, and he trusted it to God. His hope against hope rested on what he'd been told. It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't blind faith. He'd been told something by this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And he trusted him. He trusted his life to God. He had confidence in God's future that didn't exist yet. And he had confidence even though that future was outside of his power to obtain. In verse 19, you got to love the descriptions of Abraham. Like it, it talks about him as dead like all the time in the scripture. Like I wonder what he thinks of that when he, man, keep calling me old. Verse 19, he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Like, Abraham's great. He's as good as dead. Like, that's, it's not like how you talk about heroes of the faith, it shouldn't seem, right? He was about 100 years old. So if you're near that, then, then the description fits, right? Your, your, your Bible says you're as good as dead. That's what it says. Or when he considered, what else? That the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So you have this kind of ironic play of words here, like Abraham, his body was surely weakening. It doesn't get stronger as you get older. Like his ability to have children is surely weakening as he gets older. Along as his body is weakening, his ability to have children is along with it. And Sarah's ability to have children has been gone for a long time. Like she's barren. Like that's the descriptor of her. The description of him most often is he's dead, and the description of her most often is barren. Like, and we're going to put this pair together, and we're going to say, you're going to be the father of many nations. Like, that's what God is doing. But while his body was weakening, his ability to have children in his own power was weakening, Sarah's was completely gone. His faith wasn't weakening. Now, it says that he didn't 
he had faith and it wasn't weakened when he considered his own body as good as dead. And that in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, I think when it says that, it wasn't to say that there weren't times when he struggled, that there weren't times when his faith did waver. What I think he's getting at is that the characteristic of Abraham's life and faith was that it held fast. It persisted. It persevered. It didn't waver, and that's the trajectory of his faith never went a different direction. It was always in the same trajectory. It was always going in the same direction. So I think in that sense, it didn't waver. Why? Not because he denied reality. I think Abraham probably knew, I'm old, and I'm getting older, and my wife, she's barren. I think he understood reality, but what does it say? Verse 18, he believed as he was told by God. Verse 20, it says that no unbelief made him waver concerning what? The promise of God. Right? So he persevered, he persisted in faith, he wasn't weakened, but actually grew strong in his faith, not by his faith in faith or his faith in his hope and just some sort of wishful thinking, but by focusing not on himself, but on the promise of God. By what he, he's focusing on, thinking about, holding on to what he'd been told. In other words, he's looking fully to God for everything, like, I'm weakening my body is getting older. My ability to have children is weakening. My wife is barren. I don't have any power for any of this, but he's holding on and looking to God for all that God had promised. And so in that way, he gives glory to God. The way to give glory to God is not the way of independence. The way to give glory to God is the way of dependence, of full reliance. The, the way to give glory to God is not to work things out on your own and work for something from him. The way to give glory to God is to trust in him and walk in that trust before him. And that's what Abraham does. And he says his faith grew strong. He walked dependently. That is to say, his faith was in God. And look what happens in verse 21. It says that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham staked his entire life on the promise that God had given him. Like he put it all on the line and said, I'm trusting and holding on to the promises that God has given to me. And in verse 22, it says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that God would deliver on his promises and he gets in on this inheritance. He, he didn't put his trust in what was in existence or what was even seemingly possible with his dead body and barren wife. He put his trust in God. And so what these verses, 17 through 22, do is they, they show us a bit of the nature of faith. And here's the nature of faith. It's not dependent on circumstances, circumcision too. It's like you say a word enough and it just doesn't leave. And that's one of those words. It just won't leave. I am pray that it would for everybody's sake. That, that the hearing of the word might be profitable. Faith is not dependent on circumstances. Or the power and strength of man. Like we could add anything into that. It's not dependent upon those things. It looks to God. You know, look at Abraham. Look at his circumstances. He can look around and think like, what's possible here? Like, not a multitude of nations. Not an inheritance of the entire world. One person, no offspring. Faith, 
It can't even look around to what's presently in existence. Like circumstances, what's possible, or even what's presently in existence, don't dictate faith. Faith is in God. The God who brings life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He brings life where there's death. He speaks and acts in the world that he created and brings into existence things that did not exist before. What faith does is it doesn't deny all those realities, right? It doesn't turn a a blind eye to possibilities, but it puts its hope in and it looks fully to God. You know how faith can persist in difficulty and persevere in trial? It's not by looking to circumstances to kind of show us the way. It's not even by thinking about what can be reasonably thought of as a possibility of happening. It's ultimately by looking to God. That's what faith does. It's not dictated by other things. It's dictated by God. So when it looked impossible, Abraham's saying, I just am listening to what I've been told. Like Abraham, faith not only is not dependent on circumstances, but it stakes everything on God. Abraham was fully convinced, it said. Fully convinced. And so in other words, he's saying, if this doesn't work out, then I'm a fool. Paul said something similar, didn't he? He says, if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then, then all of us who are following Christ and call ourselves Christians and are trusting in this resurrection are most to be pitied. We're the fools of the earth. But what does Paul do? He still lives in hope of the resurrection. What does Abraham do? He still lives in hope against hope that God is going to be faithful to his promises because that's what faith does. It stakes everything on God. F- faith is saying God will deliver on his promises and it rests there because it has nowhere else to rest, right? It's like the disciples when they say like, Jesus turns to them at one time, do you want to leave me as well? And they say, well, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what faith does. It says we're staking it all here because we have nowhere else to go. But the reality is, is that if you're walking in the footsteps of our father Abraham, you can look around. And there will be many times when the promises seem far off. Unattainable. Impossible. It looks as if you can hear from God, have been told something by God, written down in his word, and you can look around and say of those things, that's not working out. We, we just heard of some brothers and sisters where if you like look around, it's like, where's the, the reign and rule of Christ here? And you would think like it seems to be completely absent, not just from our own life, but if you look around our country, if we even own a Bible, we could be decimated. But that's the same faith that Abraham had. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says of Abraham, he didn't receive all of that he was promised. Part of the promises that Abraham heard from God, he, he says, it says, he greeted them from afar. And Abraham's offspring are going to walk in the same footsteps that Abraham walked. In Hebrews 11, there are some that close the mouths of lions and some that get devoured by those lions. Some receive some of the promises, some don't. Some are reigning and ruling. Some are getting their heads cut off. 
That's the reality of faith. And it leads to this conclusion from the writer of Hebrews when he says in chapter 12, verse 1, speaking of the faithful, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who had received the promises and those who had been devoured, what are we to do? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. By faith we say, there is no other place to look. Lay aside those things that entangle by faith. Run the race with endurance by faith. Look to Jesus by faith. The, the promises, if we look around us, may seem far off. They may seem unattainable and impossible. They may seem to not be working out so well, but we hold on and run the race with endurance by faith. Looking to Jesus who ran the race for us, went all the way down to the depths of, the, of death and came out the other side and we look to him and say, it may not look good, it may seem far off, it may seem unattainable, but we're looking to you and we have nowhere else to go. And those who have faith may not have power on the earth and seem like the inheritors of the world. But Jesus told us it's not the ones who have the great power who inherit the earth, it's the meek who inherit the earth. It's not those who have great possessions here and now that inherit the, the greater country, the heavenly country. It's those who are the heirs of the promise of Abraham by faith who look to what God has told them. And one day, those who even have a mustard seed of faith will enter into the full inheritance of the entire world with their Savior Christ. And so if you're walking in the footsteps of Abraham by faith, let's let the message of the promise coming through faith refresh us. When things look grim, let's remember that we are in on this promise by faith. And that promise is a promise to be heirs of the entire world along with our father Abraham. Let's learn from the nature of faith and stop looking to our circumstances and our successes to dictate how we're going to go, and instead just look fully to God and stake it all on Him. Yet in the end, if His word doesn't prove true, we should be most to be pitied. But this is a God who brings life to the dead. This is a God who brings into existence things that do not yet exist. And we want to look fully to Him. Church, remember what God has promised. And we, we have a meal that helps us in this very purpose. We take this meal, we call it the Lord's Supper, where we remember the, the death of Jesus, how his body was broken, his blood was poured out, so that he could establish a new covenant, a covenant that can't be undone, right? A covenant that's going to last. <laughs> so this is a meal of remembrance, a meal of hope against hope, that one day our Savior, who died and now is raised, is going to return and finally and fully fulfill every aspect of that covenant as he takes his people to be with him forever. This is a meal of hope, <laughs> against hope, because we can look around 
And we can think these promises, the return of Christ, him setting all things right, bringing justice to the earth and salvation to his people seems far off. But right here, we can be a pocket of people that are hopeful, who say it seems far off, but in this meal, we're reminding ourselves and one another, it's not that far. And so we keep taking this meal until he returns. And so if you have faith and you walk in the footsteps of our father Abraham by faith, this meal is for you, a meal of hope. Now, if you don't have faith, haven't trusted in Jesus, we would say whatever hope you have might be unfounded. We want you to search that out and instead find a surer foundation for your hope in Christ Jesus. Don't take this meal. Instead, take Jesus. Let's pray together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus, we believe. We declare our faith today that you are going to to come back and do all the things that you have promised us. And we know this because you have already kept so many promises to your people. You gave land and kings to Abraham's descendants, and you gave the Redeemer to crush the serpent's head and draw all people to yourself. And we take this meal. We remember your broken body and your shed blood because you promised that you were the Passover lamb who would come to take away the sins of the world. You did that. You kept your word. And we are evidence of that today. We who sit in this room today with faith in you for salvation are sons of Abraham. Not by blood, but by our faith. You are a a promise-keeping God, and you're going to continue to do so. So we pray, God, that you would fill us with hope in your name. We do look around and we do not see a redeemed planet. We do not see people who have been set free from the consequences of sin. We see a creation that is in decay and human beings harming one another. And we know that that is going to come to an end, Lord. And so we hope in you. And until you come, we want to be faithful to tell people the meaning of this bread and this wine. We want to tell people what you have done for us to put things right and what you're going to do in the future to make things completely right. We take this meal in hope. We wait for you. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.